Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. My name is Molly McGrath and I am the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library and today our guest is Brian Cole. Brian is a bookbinder and conservator who, after collecting books for most of his life, set up his own workshop in 2005. Having worked in Whitby and York, Brian is now based in Scarborough. Alongside his everyday binding and conservation work, Brian has written a book, Aspire to the Beautiful, The Life of Cedric Chivers, about the influence of Cedric Chivers' library binding on public libraries. Over the last few years, Brian has worked conserving hundreds of the Leeds Library's own books and has contributed a chapter on this subject to Through the Pages, a book produced by the Leeds Library to mark its 250th anniversary. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, So firstly, uh, I want to ask you how you initially got into book conservation um, and you collected books for for many years before you um, became a um, conser- conservationist, conservator? Conservator. Perhaps. Conservator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that right? Yeah, um, yeah. Many years ago, I used to spend a lot of time um, in local auctions and things and coming across old books. And I just sort of fell in love with old books, particularly pre-1800 books, which... Uh, always printed on handmade paper mm. and uh, when you which has a totally different feel to modern machine made paper and when you when you run your fingers over it you can actually feel the indentation of the where the ink type is pressed onto the page it's um, you really get a sense of, of the fact that it's, this is a handmade um, object um, and so I started buying a old books, not always ones I was particularly interested in, but I just like the bindings, um, and I like that whole handmade feel of them. Mm. Um, you know, we, obviously we live in a, a mass-produced, any era of mass-produced things, and um, modern books are almost entirely produced by automated processes, and just that, that sort of handmade feel, that handcrafted feel, like, was something I, I just particularly liked. Um, and also I think if you read a book that was published around the time that it was written you just get a much greater sort of connectivity with the with the narrative of the book mm. uh, so if you're reading a copy of let's say I don't know Jane Eyre or something like that that was uh, published in the 1850s so it'd be an early edition um, you just it's a totally different experience if, mm. if you're reading a modern digital copy on your tablet or a, even a paperback copy um, so it's it's that sort of um, it's that sort of thing which, which attracted me to old books so I started buying them up in, in auctions and of course ones that are in really good condition you're in the antiquarian book dealers market and they sell for hundreds of pounds but you can pick up um, those sort of books quite cheaply when they're in bits. Um, mm. So I gradually accumulated this 
library of decrepit books and I just reached a point where I thought I really need to find out how to restore them, how to put mm. them back together. So I did a course uh, in bookbinding part-time and um, uh, learnt the basics because uh, bookbinding is one of those things where the, the theory is actually very simple mm. but it's the it's the practice it's uh, you you've got to work at it for quite a number of years before you reach any sort of level of real proficiency mm. um and when i'd been doing it basically as a hobby and working on my own books for quite a number of years um in 2005 i decided i would um start my own business which was a second-hand bookshop and um, I also did the bookbinding in, in there, and I, gradually the, the amount of work I got was building up, and um, yeah, it's gone from there really. Yeah, wow. So at the beginning of your your chapter in Through the Pages, you say, um, a book which has been bound using traditional techniques, using good quality materials, stored under favourable conditions and subject to moderate use, might be expected to last... 200 years before it requires rebinding so what kind of factors might cause a book to break down and need to be rebound i guess well use is the main one that i can think yeah of. you can probably split it into two categories one is physical and the second is chemical okay. so um a book in the form that we know it which is a, a series of pages um connected together and hinging down the left hand side and a couple of hard covers um, one on either side to protect the pages. That kind of book structure evolved around about the third century AD, um, and it made a, and it remained pretty much in that form until about the tenth century, when a stronger method of uh, binding uh, appeared, which was actually sewing the. Uh, the pages of the book, the folded pages, onto supports, which would originally be leather songs, mm-hmm. and later became um, linen cords. And that is, is a particularly strong form of binding, and so that, that statement I made there, really, um, mm. a book bound in that way would last 200 years. Mm. The hand-binding process is still basically the same, as as it as it's been for several centuries, although there are some um, parts of the process which uh, have been simplified to speed it up. Um, but basically, the, that basic book structure uh, is a very strong method of putting a book together. But inevitably, uh, it, it, the hinging of the front cover is would probably be leather. And just opening and closing the book inevitably um, causes wear. Mm. Um, and also, as you open and close the book, you are putting some strain on the actual stitching, on the thread which is holding the, the book together. So over a period of time, it will break down. But of course, uh, if you drop the book on its corner, <laughs> it's, uh, things get worse. And some books, if you take a something like a family bible which could have been read every day and uh, read and opened fully every day uh, that's going to get much more 
um, wear much mm. more strain on the binding than uh, um, a book which has much less use. So that would probably need rebinding more frequently. Um, but yeah, a book properly bound by uh, hand methods should last mm. that sort of period of time. And then chemically, they can they can break down as well. The so I think one of the the problems that a lot of books in our collection have is that they've got red rot, which is the the leather breaking down. Is that right? Yeah, um, and the cause of that is acid. Mm. Uh, Leeds, of course, was a heavy heavily industrialised city at one time, and and when you burn coal or when you burn coal gas, uh, you get various um, non-flammable gases given off. One of in particular is sulfur dioxide mm. and of course when you mix that with water and you only need a damp atmosphere you've got sulfuric acid mm. well um, the library used to have gas lamps I think it was lit yeah. it was quite an early adopter and that, of that gas was lamps. a major problem because um, that, that was pumping out these acidic fumes yeah which attacked the leather and in in the library archives um, we found a report from 1864 bearing in mind that the gas lighting was introduced in 1853, so it's only 10 or 11 years later, mm. where the um, trustees reported that uh, the bindings were disintegrating because of the gas lighting. Mm. And of course the, the Victorians anyway, when, when they introduced um, gas lighting into their homes, they found all the curtains and cushions and everything else dropped to bits. Um, and probably their lungs as well. <laughs> so so it, it's, it was a major problem. Mm. And poses a particular problem for our collection because we've got a, um, no, a policy of not really getting rid of any books once they've been acquired, although obviously some we do get rid of. Um, but for the most part, they're all kind of kept. So we've got yeah. loads of uh, dilapidated, mouldy, falling apart books, which... Yeah. Uh, need conservation but then also that poses kind of an interesting question of what is worth conserving because some of them are not you know historically that significant at all really they're just kind of well, the equivalent I mean, of light reading a typical example uh, is the historic fiction collection mm. and again i mean and i spent quite a lot, lot of time going to the archives looking for various things and i found um reports by um librarians from the past saying we've got this collection of mainly Victorian fiction uh, what are we going to do with it because it's all in such terrible condition um, and nobody ever really solved the problem but not long after I started here uh, the CEO who, who was Andrew Morrison decided that he would um, we needed to do he decided we really need to sort out the historic fiction mm. So we got them all out, and they'd been. Some of them were stored off site. Some of them were all over the place. But it, it, the collection had been scattered, really. And we got them all together and got some cheap racking and put them all on just so that we could see what was there. And he um, sent a list of some of the titles to uh, someone at Leeds University, uh, who said this is an incredibly important collection mm. and it needs to be preserved and in fact some of the books the British Library doesn't even have them mm. and so th this is just the pulp fiction of the day really <laughs> and 
yet it is now considered to be significant, mm. then it presents a problem in, in as much as the, most of them were leather-bound and are in this terrible state. So also, I think them. they come from a, a period of change in the publishing industry where novels and light fiction was beginning to be mass-produced and mass-published mm. yeah. and, yeah, like, rising literacy rates when people were reading for pleasure more and books were more accessible. Um, but it's interesting because I was doing some some research into, like, the history of libraries um, and I was, yeah, I was reading that in, like, the 1740s, Britain became a net exporter rather than importer of books. So there was this massive kind of boom in the mm. publishing industry. And that's where subscription libraries and circulating libraries kind of came from, that, like, an increasing demand. But, but also before that, that they had been quite reliant on, on private kind of collections and bequests and benefactors these kind mm. of quite small sociable um tiny lending libraries so those books kind of they i don't know they they kind of sit between a usable uh, object a functional object and a, an artifact something that's really like beautifully produced um which i think is really interesting because we we've got a lot of those kind of books in our collection so this mm. kind of yeah, I don't know. I think that's really interesting to consider. Yeah, that's right. And with the historic fiction, um, other libraries, as soon as those books lost popularity, they'd have been chucked out. Mm. They'd all been thrown out. And very few libraries have retained those. But because this library has a, a policy of non-disposal, mm. we've still got them. We've got everything. Um, and uh, so... It, it becomes a problem, but then at the same time, it's it's an interesting problem because of it, it, its historic value, really. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right. And th- well, this this was the um, this was the quote that I thought was quite interesting. This is from the the Cambridge History of Libraries in oh, right. Britain and Ireland, right. uh, and it says the development of different types of library was clearly part of this 18th century commercial revolution in Britain, the age of a new consumer society. But the societal valuation of the book was qualitatively different because, from most other consumer trades in that it was not simply commercial, but intrinsically intellectual and in the broadest terms, political. Mm. I think that's really interesting. Um, but yes, well, I guess my next question is about um, your process, actually. When a book comes to you and it's and it's been used and it's falling apart and it's uh, the acidity is kind of rotting away the leather, what... Uh, other steps that you go through to to get it back into a kind of functional condition. Yeah, the um, basically what you have to do is completely uh, disassemble the the book into its constituent sections. The section being the the group of folded pages, um, and you then have to repair any damaged pages, and then think about putting the book back together so it needs to be re-sewn and you there are different ways of sewing books and you tend to use uh, the method use the same sewing holes in the in the back of the section as has been originally used to maintain the uh, that initial uh, intrinsic structure of the book mm. And once you've got it sewn back together, you then have to consider whether you're going to use the original boards or 
provide new boards. Now, if it's an original binding, um, the, to, that's something you might really want to retain. Um, but then we we're approaching this uh, this question of whether it's the book is has become a, a, an historical artifact mm. or whether it's, you want it to be a book again, which people can use. And the general policy here is that we want the books in usable condition so that they can go back on the shelves and people can take them down and look at them, uh, which is what a book is for. Um, so you, you then, uh, having sewn it together, you would then have to make a decision as to whether you're going to use the original uh, binding. So you can reattach the original boards uh, and if you've got the original spine, Invariably, the book, so that it functions properly, will have to have a new spine, whether that's leather or cloth or whatever it happens to be. Um, if, but if you've got the original spine, you can then overlay that on top of the new spine. Mm. So you can... That's really the, the process of restoration. Um, but with so many of the books here, because we've got not that many in their original bindings, and I think a lot of those that are in the original bindings are ones that have been donated to the library. Mm. But the, in the 1880s, 1890s, the library had virtually all of its books rebound um, in leather. Uh, but for various reasons, and I think one of the problems is that they were using acidic leather, uh, those books now need, again, rebinding. Mm. Uh, and they're the ones that are frequently coming to me. Um, so they're not in original bindings, they're in the, the sort of standard house style that was adopted in the, in the 1880s, which uh -huh. is sort of a leather, leather spine and leather corners and a purple cloth size. And again, going back to the archives, we've got correspondence from the librarian where he's clearly... Um, giving a very exact specification to the contract binders that the yes. was using because he, uh, McAllister in the 1880s, he did very briefly employ a bookbinder, um, but apparently he was always falling asleep on the job, so <laughs> he got booted out. But the, the, for the most part, they were using contract binders and mm. quite a few different ones in Leeds. And... Um, they were given the specification, and the library must have looked incredibly dull because all the uh, they were all done the same. So you'd mm. have rows and rows of these books with dark brown leather spines, um, which would look pretty boring, really. Yeah. But, um, that was how they did it in those days. And one of the things that I like about about your work, I've seen some of the books that you've rebound, is that there's a kind of attention to. The, the detail of the original binding if it exists but then also the the contents of the book and how it it might have looked originally and you've kind of a lot of them are quite you've kind of tried to recreate how they might have looked um and each one is kind of unique and original and reflects the contents the, the ones that are more kind of valuable or important I guess. yeah um with some books the earlier books particularly sort of pre-1800 they were sewn, as I, as I mentioned earlier, onto cords. And if the if the sewing is still sound, and, and they often used to use an awful lot of glue on, the, on them as well, so actually taking the book apart 
to rebind it can cause more damage uh, than actually if, if the sewing is sound you can just reline the spine but if it's got the bands running across the spine you have to rebind it in leather mm. you can't do it in cloth whereas if you completely take a book apart you can sew it onto tapes which means the back of the spine will be flat and then you can just cover it in anything you like really mm. um, usually a, a, book, a book cloth and there are book cloths which are um, particularly strong um, specifically designed for finding library books uh, so you then have choices but if, if you've rebinding a book which has got raised bands on the back then you've no choice but to, to do it in leather um, without taking the book apart and as I say I'm a bit reluctant to do that sometimes for causing more damage mm. and, uh, so yeah. Um, you know you ask about the process well it varies depending on the book yeah um, yeah yeah but because so many of them are in this standard binding uh, I, I don't bother to uh, try and restore those there's not a lot of point because there's thousands of them which look yeah. the same so there's nothing um, unique about the binding or, or valuable in retaining it but if it's got um, a, some of the the older ones who've got I'm just looking at there at the moment actually some I did uh, a few weeks ago um. were restored uh, the books and kept the original boards on them because they've got some quite nice blind tooling yeah. on the boards and I've, I've had to put new spines in them because the spines have perished but um, if, if the uh, original binding is of historical value then yeah I, I always try and keep that. Mm. It's interesting that um, it's a continuous process and that you're not necessarily always rebinding books in their original form but books that have themselves been rebound by another mm. another um book binder um and i guess there is a a certain element of trial and error with book binding um because you don't well i suppose we know more now but you 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 know like people didn't know obviously that um the acidity in the air was going to cause the books to decay mm. so quickly um and, and also the in um the late 19th century people weren't interested in preserving mm. uh, it, they just rebound the books yeah and, and they didn't bother about keeping any of the original binding they didn't really see the significance of keeping that yeah uh, as an, an historical record but yeah um, and the history, I mean, you, book binding, obviously, traditional book binding hasn't changed much since the 10th century, you say, but um, obviously there are kind of certain trends within that. Mm. And, you know, you can recognise uh, a certain book binder's work. Um, so I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the different kinds of, uh, if well, if there are any kind of trends or, or variations in the style of certain book binders and how people might choose to do it differently. Um, yeah, I mean, the, um, you can often identify an old binding by the style of the gold tooling. Mm -hmm. um, again, going back to uh, the end of the 19th century, near the 20th century, it was a real sort of golden age for, there was a, some very um, good bookbinders who rose to prominence 
during mm. that period. And some of them developed their own very distinctive styles, um, particularly some of the women bookbinders at that time. Mm. And you can often pick up a book and, and it's immediate, just from the design of the tooling, you can tell that it's by a particular binder. Mm. Um, so, uh, but, but then the, the binder, when, you, when you're actually tooling a book, you have a whole range of uh, brass engraved tools, and so you can just make it up as you go along, really, with mm. patterns and things. You, do, you tend not to do use the same pattern or the same designs. Mm. Just, everything is different, really. Yeah, and there are different um, ways to conserve. I think one of the things that I found really interesting that I didn't know that could be done was that you um, you can take a book, well, you can you can laminate the pages, which is. Uh, preserving the the original pages, mm. or you can take a book apart, scan it digitally, reprint it, uh, put it back together. So it almost it looks exactly the same as um, uh, the original, but obviously it's been reprinted and it's mm. like good as new, basically. Which seems a weird kind of um, simulacrum of the kind of original and a bit yeah. kind of bizarre and surreal in a way. Well, we, we invited a commercial bookbinder in Leeds to come and give us a quote for doing some of the conservation work. Mm. And the chap there, I, I think he, when he realised there was so much work here, I think they were quite keen to, to get the job. And um, so I pulled a book at random and it was one of the historic fiction books. Mm. gave it to him and he took it away and he rebound the original it with a cloth binding um, but then he took when he'd taken the, the original book apart he scanned it completely and then using the digital copy that he, he'd acquired they then had software that they could actually clean the pages so all the mucky uh, okay. finger marks, and the, the, any marks on the, they can actually clean it up quite easily. And, and um, Anna Goodrich and I, we went round the bindery and, and saw them doing that. Uh, so there's a chap there sitting at a, a computer screen just cleaning all the pages up. Mm -hmm. And having done that, um, he then printed off the book and rebound that the same as the, as the old one. And the two books are a totally different feel to them. Mm. Completely different feel. And it, it was quite odd. And, and when you looked at this digital, digitally enhanced copy, um, it was just like a new book. And mm. had none of the. There is that, that thing about reading an old book in, in its original form that you just. It's a different experience. Yeah, well, you pick up so much stuff from. I mean, I've, I've talked to Jane in um, the librarian here in her episode about finding little marginalia notes and mm. things that people have kind of scrawled in the pages and the difference between, you know, have, like having a physical kind of old book and a physical library space as well as a space. To just... It's quite interesting because the on the accession label that used to be stuck on the inside cover. It says anyone caught defacing this book <laughs> in any way will, you know, will be hauled before the committee or something. Mm. I can't remember the wording. But now, you know, a few hundred years down the line, 
all that uh, where people have made little notes and things that's sort of valuable mm. um, and interesting uh, uh, interesting stuff <laughs> or even though at the time it would have been frowned upon so although if there are any members listening who are thinking about defacing books don't don't do <laughs> <Yeah>. it <laughs> yeah. um so one of the uh styles of of binding which you know quite a lot about is the Chivers Cedric Chivers binding and you um wrote a book about um Cedric Chivers and he so he patented his his design in 1885 um and but so it was it was like duroflexile I think it was called duroflexile binding Yeah. yeah um but he was this kind of style of binding became hugely popular in in the UK and also America. He he did he cross the Atlantic like a hundred and twenty times or he something did, yeah. in his life, which um, is insane. It, it, well, the interesting thing about this is that it's totally forgotten now. Mm. But at the time, um, the publishers were uh, and we're talking about eighteen eighties and uh, from that period. Publishers had found cheap, easy ways of producing books, which meant that the bindings were extremely weak, which were probably all right for a domestic market, and somebody just buying a book and reading it, and that was fine. But if you put it in a public library, uh, the books would fall apart after they'd been borrowed three or four times. Mm. And it was a massive problem. It really was a, a very serious problem for the librarians in these new public libraries, because they would have a, a purchasing budget. and. Um, you know, they, they were so they were buying these books in, in cheap publishers' bindings and then they dropped to bits. And they would then have to either replace the book or have it rebound. Which so the the cost then became quite considerable. And Cedric, <coughs> excuse me, Cedric Chivers got to hear about this. And he, he was a chap who presented him with a problem. He, he, he would wouldn't walk away from it. He would go at it until he discovered a, a solution. And so he came up with this method, which, as you say, he patented, called the duroflexile binding. And he claimed that um, when the the book had become so dirty and soiled and, and pages damaged that it had to be taken out of service, the binding would still be sound. And it, it, there's some justification because we've got mm. a lot of his bindings here and they, they are all over leather, maybe decayed, the the bindings are, are still firm around the book. And so he went round the public libraries, you know, offering them this service and, and what he later did was go to the publishers and bought books in sheet form mm. and then he bound them so that the libraries could buy a new copy of the book already bound in the, in this bomb-proof, mm. indestructible binding. And it, and it, uh, the librarians all over the country soon realised that, in fact, it made economic sense to buy them like that because they lasted. And mm. um, before long, Chivers, who was based in Bath, um, he had a bindery there. He set up a... Uh, a sort of industrial unit on the outskirts of, of Bath, basically just doing library books, and uh, he made an absolute fortune out of it. And he also went over to America and gave lectures and, and what have you. And um, 
for some reason, nobody in America, no, there were no bookbinders who, who would, I mean, they could have just plagiarized his method and, and sold it in America, but they didn't. And mm. so the American librarians, first of all, they started sending crate loads of books from New York to Bath um, for Chibbers to restore. And they, they were able to do that economically because wages were a lot lower in this country. Mm. Um, but then they wrote to him and said, look, can you uh, come over to America and, and set up a bindery here and you know, use your methods to do the library book? So he, he did, he went to Brooklyn um, and set up a, a bindery and um, before long he was doing huge amounts of work for all the libraries in, in America. Mm. Uh, Impressive considering it could only get there by boat and it yeah. took about five days yeah, yeah. to cross the Atlantic. But he he, um, he sent a couple of people over from from Bath in, once he'd set, got it set up, and they they uh, sort of oversaw the the running of the the bindery there. But he would go over on a regular basis. And bearing in mind, towards the end of that period, he was in his sixties, and but he was um, a pretty fit chap, I think. And he, he used to, as you say, he crossed the Atlantic one hundred and twenty mm. times. Wow, um, and he actually became good friends with McAllister, who, who was the librarian here um, between 1880 and 1887. Um, but originally they had a kind of working relationship and he sent some of his um, books, binding uh, his Chivers style bound books to McAllister who, to kind of test out, um, who wrote back to him. And this is where the, the title of your book comes from. I think this is quite a good, a good quote. But McAllister st- says, um, my people, I'm sorry to say, do not altogether like your style. It is certainly far from pretty, and I trust that you will show in the next lot that you can bind tastefully as well as strongly. However, in the whole, your work is good and sound, and if, as I say, you can aspire to the beautiful as well as the useful, we shall get on. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> that's interesting because um, the public library is readily accepted Chivers's uh, mm. binding, which was um, a bit functional in appearance, uh, because of, of what it set out to do. But the Leeds Library will still have been something of a a gentleman's club, I think, and mm. the cosmetic appearance of the books was significant, and that's what McAllister didn't like. It he wanted them to look look pretty, mm. um, and so that that's really why. Uh, that's where the inspiration for the book came from, is because we've got these letters in the in the uh, archives here, which between uh, McAllister and, and Chivers, and Chivers is really desperately trying to get in here mm. uh, with his binding methods, and, and McAllister saying, yeah, "I'm not very keen on it." But in actual fact, they became great friends later on because mm. McAllister left here and went to London, and he was president of the. UK Libraries Association, and he also edited the library um, journal. And um, Chivers, of course, uh, as a, so that he could uh, you know, extend his networking, he uh, was a leading light in the UK Library Association. So we meet all the all the librarians from the public libraries and mm. um, be able to 
flog them is uh, <laughs> his, his bindings. So, mm. uh, but it, it's really interesting um, correspondence between mm. McAllister and Chip. It's not just about binding, but there's all sorts of other stuff as well. Um, and it's fortunate, really, that McAllister, one of the things he did like doing was having his letters copied because, of course, there was no, there was no photocopies. It had to be lettered, they had to be copied using a, a letterpress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another technique I discovered because I, I didn't know how that was achieved. But, uh, yeah, the, he, he liked to have his letters copied, so we've got loads of them, oh, of his correspondence in, in the archives here. Yeah. Well, also, we have a few of the books that he bound, um, which... I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there aren't that many left because, ironically, although his bindings did last mm. significantly longer than usual bindings, they he most often bound books that were in public libraries and they get rid of books, obviously, mm. when they kind of, they're no longer being read. So there aren't that many examples of his work well, left. When, when I was doing so. research for the book, um, I approached a number of, of public libraries and said... And, I mentioned Cedric Chivers, and they all said, who? And um, <laughs> then I said, have you got any books bound by him? Because I, I wanted to... The, the ones he did for the library here are in a particular style, and I was interested to see if uh, he used other styles for other libraries. Nobody had heard of him, and nobody had got any of his books. And when I went to the Brooklyn Public Library, where he had a complete monopoly over all the binding and everything that went on there must mm. have done thousands and thousands of books for them the archivist there had never heard of him and when I asked if uh, we could go and have a look in their um, archival collections uh, well she wouldn't let me in there but uh, <laughs> she went off and spent a long time and eventually came up with one very dilapidated book in mm. a Chibber's binding and that's all she could find so I you can't stress the influence that he had in public libraries. It's enormous, um, you know, massive, really, what he achieved with his, his binding methods. And yet it's totally forgotten. And yeah. The books have all disappeared, apart from here. Because, uh, Never we threw anything away. <laughs> we haven't got a disposal policy. And I've discovered about uh, 2,000 of the uh, historic fiction uh, in the Duraflexile style. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes, I mean, I guess, again, that goes back to that really interesting um, dilemma of a book, uh, particularly a historical book, is sitting partway between, yeah, artefact and functional object. And, mm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. And, and also that there is some... Uh, value in things that are everyday and um quotidian and not you know of of immense value like the kind of historical fiction collection which is mm-hmm. yeah just victorian light reading but actually yeah. as a collection <laughs> says something really significant about the time that it was produced in it, it, it is a real dilemma uh, because i've done work for other libraries where they've consulted conservators who have said you can't have these on the shelves where people can take them down and look at them. Um, these books need to be in uh, archival boxes and mm. made inaccessible. But if that's not the purpose of the of the 
library, then you're defeating the object because mm. a, a book is a book at the end of the day. And okay, if it's something which is very um, significant, then yeah, you have to restrict the. Uh, I'm thinking as I'm speaking here of um, our first edition of The Origin of Species, mm. Charles Darwin, which isn't that old, but um, it's a first edition. Uh, so is significant in that sense, but it's so acidic that the pages are just crumbling. Mm. And so with that, we've just made a, a purpose-built, custom-built box for it, mm. and it sits in there, and um, we restrict people's access to it. We don't let people... It's kept in here. So, mm. we, um, uh, so something like that, yeah. Uh, you've got to keep it, uh, mm. keep it safe and look after it, but... And you, I guess usually it's based on age mm. to a large extent. But just looking around the old office here, I can see some very early vellum-bound books. And mm. I think it's important that um, people have access to them and mm. can look at them. And actually that's what's really one of the, the kind of unique and great things about this library is that a, a large percentage of the collection is historical and pre 1900 and although we don't lend those books out members are free to come and look through them and use mm. them and there isn't you know you don't really have to have any supervision or you know they are just there and on the shelves and you can go and pick them out I mean, if, yeah if they're stored away in in archival boxes somewhere um people can still access them but they've got to know a title and an author uh, mm. before it can, the book can be retrieved and uh, mm. for them to look at. But if you've got, I mean, for instance, we've got this fantastic collection of 19th century travel books up on the gallery out in the, in the main room of the library. And they're terrific books. And, uh, you know, the fact that people can just go and pull them off the shelves and, and mm. look at them, is, it, I think it's so important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there's something so exciting about, I mean, I've definitely found just walking around and mm. picking random books off the shelf and having a, a skim through them. Yeah. You never know what you're going to find. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes it's not either of those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you, so you, uh, we've also got the, the, uh, the original collection as well, which you've been rebinding the, I think it, they call it the 1768 collection with the books that were in the original catalogue. Yes. Um, we've now got all, a lot, a lot of those had already been rebound when, mm. I, when I started working about eight years ago. Um, but they still keep turning up and so we've now got them all um, rebound mm. and uh, sitting up there. Yeah, no, I can see they're just behind <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and that's amazing that, that we, you know, obviously over 250 years old and we've still got the original collection of books mm. um, in a kind of usable, functional condition. Mm. Um, so obviously we've got that, that kind of set. You've been working with the Victorian fiction collection as well. Um, are there any other kind of, what can you tell me a bit about the other work you've done with the, the Leeds Libraries collection specifically? Um, yeah, well, one collection, there, there was a point where uh, individual staff members were given a uh, a collection to uh, sort of analyse and look at and mm. record and and talk about the, the rest of the staff and and I was given um, 
hunt and shoot and fishing. <laughs> um, so that was one that uh, having examined, it's not a particularly big collection, but I went through that and we, we rebound um, anything unrepaired. So that, that's, a, that's a collection which is, should be fully um, in good shape. Uh, so we did that one, but then it, it's really been a question of um, finding sort of the more, shall we say, the more significant books uh, in the collection, those that are housed in, in the old office here, uh, and working on those. Mm. Um, although we, I mentioned the 19th century travel, we had a lot of those done by this commercial bookbinder in Leeds, but the problem was the with some of the first books that we sent them, they, they came back and they were fine. But because they use some automated processes in the um, in rebinding the books, particularly for sewing, they sew the books up by machine, and the machines are so aggressive, if you like, they're a bit like a, an ordinary sewing machine, but. Um, that they were bashing up the backs of the, of the books. Mm. And uh, when they were bound and they came back to us, when you started opening them, we found that there were pages were coming out. And, uh, it was just the methods that they were using. And we had a lot of the, that um, collection done. Um, uh, but then I, I've started the ones that really are in poor condition they, they just need doing by hand and so mm. I started working on those uh, and in fact we were looking at the the rest of them the other day there's still a lot need doing mm -hmm. yeah. so and that's an important collection which well it's an ongoing process as well isn't it because books mm. are obviously they're con they're constantly in use um, so they're kind of constantly being worn down mm. um, I guess to kind of wrap it up, I, I wanted to ask you about, I guess, the kind of the shape of bookbinding in the UK today um, and what kind of you think about the future of it and, and how it might evolve. And um, I guess digitization is a really interesting aspect of that because it, there's so much possibility um, to kind of make historical books and texts available um, on a wider scale, but then also, yeah, I definitely think you lose something when you don't have a, a physical, tangible object that's been well looked after and properly conserved. Yeah. Um, so that's quite a broad question, I guess, but but yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that's the way that it's going to go, and um, a lot of libraries are already doing that, is, is digitising everything. Mm. And, it, and it makes sense, um, it makes economic sense, because to... To rebind a book, it, and depending on the, the sort of level of restoration that's required, it could be a hundred pounds to just to fairly basically rebind a book. Mm -hmm. um, and when you consider that, I, I did a survey, and I think I, I identified about thirty thousand books which needed mm. um, needed work, and the time involved to to achieve that, you know, it's just. Um, eye watering really so you uh, pretty uh, with modern scanners uh, all singing all dancing scanners you can just chuck a book in and it will scan it for you and, mm. and um, 
it makes more sense. But then, uh, as we say, you're, you're losing something. And, and if you've got a, a scanned uh, digital version, you know, why do you need to keep the original? Mm. Um, obviously, in some cases, it, it's fairly obvious if it's a very old book and, uh, or an important book. Yeah, but um, again, we've used the historic fiction as, a, as, a, as an example. Um, if, if we digitise those, do we really need to uh, keep all the original ones? Mm. I don't know. Um, it's a tricky one. I think it's really interesting and, I don't know, a really compelling kind of argument. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there is definitely a kind of um, sense of immediacy that you get with a with a physical book that you don't get with... I don't know. Yeah. I think it's good to have both. That's my, my yeah, thoughts on it. The, um, and the general ethos, as far as conservation is concerned, is you want a minimum intervention. Yeah. Adding... A, and taking away as little as possible mm. and that's why a lot of conservatives now sort of say well you you just shouldn't touch it you should stick it in a box and, mm. and put it away and uh, I introduced the the idea of these phase boxes which is you can make very quickly and very simply and it's custom built to fit a particular book so uh, that gives immediate protection to the book Mm-hmm. But even so, if somebody wants to consult it, they're still going to take it out of the box and um, it's going to still be damaged anyway. So if it's going to remain as a book, then it needs rebinding. Um, but the way, the way uh, book binding itself is going, it, there seems to be far more interested in what's called designer book binding, where mm. the book or the, the contents of the book are um, taken as a starting point and the book is then treated as a piece of art really and you then create a binding which is relevant to that book So, and you, you might want to use uh, different coloured inlays of leather or, or whatever and, and that's um, there are still people who will just do basic uh, restoring and, and rebinding uh, as I do really mm. but then the interest in, in book binding at the moment generally seems to be in, in what's called designer book binding mm. and that I mean that that has always been I mean you talk about in your in your book um, Chivers going to Paris and uh, as a young man and learning about the kind of more artistic mm. book binding like Art Deco or Art Nouveau book binding even Um and there, are, I think there's like different aspects of the the actual process, the the forwarding process, which is the essential aspects of constructing the book, the sewing the pages together, attaching the boards, and then finishing, which is kind of more detailed artistic application of gold leaf or leaf or leather inlays and decorative materials. So that's always been a kind of aspect of book binding. Um, which is, I guess, that's wonderful if that's becoming more more popular now. Yeah, the finishing side of it, the application of gold leaf, um, is a real skill which takes an awful long time mm. to acquire. And there are one or two people in the country who are extremely good at it. 
um, but the average uh, bookbinder seldom acquires the that level of skill mm. to produce beautifully tall bindings. And only going back to the 18th century, a lot of the libraries that were created then were in the houses of wealthy people who mm. just wanted uh, these rather beautiful libraries just to show that they were literate, cultured people mm. uh, and they probably never looked at the books or read them or weren't actually interested in the contents of the books but it was just a very much just a cosmetic thing and many of the really beautifully uh, gold-tooled bindings that you see around started off in those those kind of libraries and there's so much less demand for that now but mm. there are still collectors who who want books bound with you know very much a traditional gold tooled gold yeah. bindings um so yeah um and of course there were loads of, of book binders at one time it was just an extremely important trade now there, there are very few commercial binders about mm. uh, i think when i i had a workshop in york for a time and i think when i first went there which was um probably about 10 years ago 10 12 years ago i think there were six book binders in york and i think there's only one now mm. as far as i'm aware um so there's less demand certainly Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I guess the kind of historical collections are still they still in existence and still Mm. (laughs) falling into disrepair at the same rate. Yeah. Um. Gosh, that doesn't seem like a (laughs) a very hopeful note to end it on. But it's, I mean, the work that you've done here is amazing and and really beautiful and um. Yeah, I just think the the attention to detail um, and the kind of the fact that you kind of take into consideration the contents of the book often as well. I think it's really amazing. And if you are ever in the Leeds Library, you should hundred percent ask the the librarians about the about Brian's work. <laughs> it's on the shelves. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And thank you very much for coming on this podcast you're very welcome (laughs) this has been a podcast from the leeds library links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description if you'd like to find out more about the leeds library and any of our upcoming events please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on twitter instagram or facebook at the leeds library thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.